If you love Sports Bazaar, why wouldn't you want to sign up to Bazaar Plus, our membership program, for even more episodes? Just go to the link in the show notes to sign up. It's Sports Bazaar. There's a lot to like in this story. It's getting more ridiculous as it goes on. The hunt for the weirdest. What are you talking about? Are you serious? What? So many questions. Okay, I'm going to have to stop you here. <laughs> strangest. Unflattering, but essentially accurate. I'm quite exhausted. <laughs> it's going to get stranger and stranger. Most unbelievable. If you wrote this as a movie, people wouldn't believe Stories it. Stories to ever occur. An epic tale of woe, joy, nutty behaviour. The fact that it's not more well known is just the strangest thing. In the world of sports. This is going to get juicy here, isn't it? We should open a window or something. <laughs> sports Bazaar. How many testicles did he have? Eight. I'm <laughs> running naked down a major street in Chicago. <laughs> this, of course, is the last time organised crime and boxing with Crosto. Got up in a press conference. We're here to announce we've swapped our wives. What is going on? It's time for the leaders of the hunt. Got household names for me. It's surely a red flag. It's Titus O'Reilly. And Mick Malloy. Welcome back to Sports Bazaar once again. What are you bringing to the table this time, Titus? To me, out of the entire Olympic Games, so we're going into the Olympic Games, this is the most catastrophic, amazing, bizarre event in the history of the Olympics. Okay, and that's arguably a big call. the worst Olympics worst ever Olympics. held. The Hitler Olympics? No. Not, well, you know, there's a lot of things done wrong. Russia, this, what was that, the boycott? No, this, we've got to go back to, it's the third Olympic Games in St. Louis. So this, St. Louis. we're going all the way back to 1904. This is really where a bunch of things come together to just give us a glorious mess. And are we talking about a specific sport or the overall? We are. We're going to talk about the marathon ultimately. Okay. And this is the marathon that almost ended marathons. Remember, there'd only been two modern Olympic Games before this. And then suddenly you have this St. Louis marathon and it is so bad that they almost come really close to ending it. You know what? I don't think I'd miss it. It's not my favourite event, and it's not the best for it's a lot sitting of running. on the couch and watching. It's a lot of skinny blokes, yeah, running through streets. Well, you and I, let's be honest, we don't look like guys that are on the verge of doing a marathon. Have you ever no done time a, soon? Have you ever done mar- any I, running of any distance? I did cross country at my school peninsula and was caught getting out of a cab. <laughs> And well, that, you. I'm sorry to say, is a true story. Well, can I just say, you would have fitted in the 1904. <laughs> okay. Can I ask, you said it's the third. Yes, he had Paris and Athens. And you remember the Olympic movement at this time, they were very new. Yeah. People didn't really know what it was. And so they thought, well, let's go to America. Did it have world attention at Not really. Stage? Like it sort of had a little bit, but not like it was. Like people competing in the Olympics outside of Europe, a lot of people in their home nations didn't know it was happening. Yeah. So not like it is now. So it was Athens in 1896, then Paris in 1900. And it got a terrible start when the St. Louis Olympics, the 1904 Olympics, got awarded to Chicago. So not great for St. Louis when it's awarded to a completely different city. I don't understand. What happened? The Olympics go, we're going to go to Chicago. That was the decision. So they announced this. St. Louis at the time is going to be holding the World's Fair. Which used to be a massive deal. Like now, huge. no one cares about the World's yeah. Fair, but it used to be a big deal. So, this is this huge World's Fair, for people that know, was this huge expo where countries would have it and they'd show off the technology, the culture of that country. And it was say, all bullshit. Well, it was basically it was all stuff that could be happening. A lot of it's futuristic. 
some of it's, you know, like not that futuristic stuff that is happening, but at the time is seen like cutting edge. Like at the St. Louis one, they had fairy floss. <laughs> and this was seen as like the latest in in technology, right? It's so, like a scientific Eurovision. Yeah. <laughs> fairy floss. Next they, year, toffee apples. Well, no, this is what they showed. St. Louis had this World Fair for 904. They're showing off things like electric plugs, x-rays, and ice cream cones. And fairy floss. Oh, the cone. It's That's a game changer. Game changer in every way. <laughs> you ask anyone, what's, what are the big step changes in desserts? Do you remember where you were when you saw your first cone? <laughs> the cone has stood the test of time. Well, the cone is like. I mean, you can vary it. You can have a waffle cone. Yeah. Or you can have like a kitty, little stumpy one. The square bottom. And the square bottom. Put it on like. Cone and it's here to start. It's. <laughs> <laughs> well, and x-rays have done pretty well. Electric plugs, they've that done well. That would have been great the first time you saw an x-ray. Have a look at this. What's that? That's your skeleton. That would have been true magic for people. They would have thought that Absolutely. was like voodoo kind of magic going on. It's very similar to the technology used in x-ray specs. <laughs> uh, made famous in the back of cartoons. So St. Louis World Fair... It, the big reason it's a huge deal at the time is it's the centennial of what was called the Louisiana Purchase. In 1804, the United States, Thomas Jefferson had decided that Napoleon Bonaparte was broke. Fighting wars was expensive. <laughs> Has he found out? <laughs> he found out. Very expensive. So he offered Thomas Jefferson, he said, oh, we will sell you Louisiana. Now, it's not Louisiana as you now know it. The state. It's not the state. It actually was this huge part of America. that The French had just gone, this is ours. On a map, they'd just gone, this is ours. They bagged it. They, they turned, bagged they, it, Did yeah. they turn up with a boat first or did yeah, they bag it off there. the map? Yeah, they'd vaguely gone there. But when they claimed it, they hadn't settled it or been there. And, in fact, the other problem was that the Native Americans owned it. Yeah, let's, but no uh, one, let's no not one, forget <laughs> the Native Americans. Yeah. No one worried about niceties like that at the time. Oh, wow. So it was an area of land larger than France, Spain, Portugal, Italy, Germany, Holland, Switzerland, and the British Isles combined. But whereabouts? It's all of Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, Large parts of North Dakota and South Dakota, parts of Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, Minnesota, Louisiana, New Mexico, Texas, and even bits of Canadian provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan. They think it's the largest real estate deal ever done, and it was 2.14 million square kilometers or 530 million acres, and he bought it for $15 million. That's oh, a brain-snapping bargain. <laughs> it's, what was the reserve? <laughs> <laughs> they say it's the most successful real estate deal in the history of time. Who do you reckon got the better of the deal? Oh, the Americans. Mm. Like Bonaparte just gave he it all. He was really yeah. in trouble. Now, the French didn't really control it all, like I said, so they sort of were selling something that really the Native Americans owned and lived in. Like the French didn't live there. But you can imagine, <sighs> yep. and spoiler alert, the Americans handled those negotiations with the Native Americans with great dignity I'm and sure. respect. You know, yeah, no, they would have. No problems there. It works out to four cents an acre. <laughs> 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 so the World Fair, it's actually called the Louisiana Purchase Exposition World Fair. So it was all of this. And they find out suddenly that these nascent Olympic Games have been handed to Chicago. Okay. And are furious. But are they saying you can't have both? Is that what they're saying? They're you can't saying, have the fair and the Olympics. Well, they suddenly see that they're having this big World Fair, which is this big and international event, celebrating the Louisiana Purchase. We're going to get dwarfed. Olympics was new, but they were like, why is someone else competing with us? We should have it as part of that. So they say to the Olympics, have it in St. Louis. They say, we can't. We've already awarded it to Chicago. Mm. They say, okay, well, we'll set up 
a competing athletics competition and put you out of business for good. And what did they come up with? So the IOC say, well, hang on, they see St. Louis as a third rate, their words, American city, because mm. it's you got to get there by boat, this is before planes. And then mm. Chicago, you know, you can access pretty easily on the lakes. But St. Louis is inland and takes days on the train to get there. So they're like, who's going to go? Like right. Chicago is a great place to go. Why do you want to go to St. Louis? But when they say, well, we're going to absolutely destroy the Olympic movement if you don't move it to St. Louis, the Olympics go, right, okay, well, we'll give in. Uh, Baron Pierre de Coubertin, he is the guy who invented the modern Olympics. Once he awarded it to them under duress, he decides not to go because he's kind of annoyed with them. (laughs) And he said he had the sort of presentment that the Olympiad would match the mediocrity of the town. That is very fresh. <laughs> that is very brutal. So he thinks, I don't want to do this. Now, he is not wrong in that the rest of the world decide they don't want to go either. Okay. St. Louis is just too hard, right? It's like getting to the United States is hard enough, but getting there is you've got a long ocean voyage and it's a thousand mile train We're trip. off Broadway now. We're off Broadway. It's like, why do I want to go? Worse still, the World Fairs runs over five months. So they say, well, the Olympics will also have to run for five months. Five months? <laughs> You're going to need 20 Olympic rings. Yeah. What do you, what so do you the, mean? How would you they stagger, just stagger out the there? things over five months, which makes it a logistical nightmare because you don't have everyone there at the same time. If you're trying to run it, send a team. Athletes from around the world are going to have to basically live. Either, yeah, live there if they're in multiple ones. So all the countries just go, this is too hard. So to the point where only 12 countries go to the 1904 oh St. Louis Olympics. 523 of the 630 athletes who competed were from the United States. So you're getting an idea. The Americans did really well. Oh, did they now? (laughs) Yeah, they got 239 medals. Second place was Germany with 12 medals. (laughs) So that's giving you – this is how bad it is, right? If you can imagine all these countries not showing up. A guy called George Iser won six medals, including three gold in gymnastics, despite only having one leg and a wooden leg. (laughs) (laughs) His signature move was a Ford roll, apparently. (laughs) He he had one. Well, he had a wooden leg and he competed with the wooden leg. It's not like he even took it off and he still won six gymnastics medals. No one has heard him on the rings. On the uh, pommel horse, the dismount. (laughs) May. hard. It may cause problems. So that's just been on the rings, though. Yeah, yeah, the rings would be fine. So did he compete with a leg attached? Yeah. There's pictures of him we can put up. It's amazing. Like, absolutely amazing. <laughs> so this just shows you no one shows up. So it's already, you Cycling? Know, was in cycling? No. <laughs> it was, it's not a great one. Now, as part of the World Fair, which is attached to the Olympics, you know. It running concurrently. concurrently. and all this. They're showing all things off about America. So they've got the world's largest organ. Okay. When I say organ, I mean as in you mean a piano sort of thing. <laughs> I'll show you the world's largest organ. Yeah, exactly. Organ. They had Abe Lincoln's boyhood cabin that they had dismantled and brought reassembled. Yeah. They had cotton candy and peanut butter, which were both new. <laughs> both new and... Exciting stuff. Both of the test of time. They also had, and this is the interesting bit, they had a human zoo, right? <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to stop you <laughs> A real... What are you talking about? Like a freak circusy style? No. A bearded worse, lady? Worse than that. They bought in... 3,000 Indigenous people from around the globe and housed them in displays based on their natural habitat. So, for example, there was a (sighs) Philippine village spread out over 47 acres 
populated with Filipinos and it was designed to, <laughs> <laughs> and it was, this is a little bit racist, Mick. I'm just, it's not, uh, it's this 1904. Do you remember? It's 1904. Oh they didn't, luckily, America isn't racist anymore. Hang on, hang on a second. So it's like a free range. Yeah, zoo. They're, you they're, can wander through. Just with the Filipinos. Yeah. What are they doing in their natural habitat? They're acting out a normal day. day. In their village. So the reason there's one, the Philippines is a big one, is America's just gained the Philippines off the Spanish in the war. So this is when oh, they took over. So they went, hey, here's, yeah, they wanted to show Americans, hey, this is our new We own this. We own these people and this land. So they had that. Other smaller villages on display included pygmies from Central Africa. Now, pygmies is a racist term for a whole group of people, but this is what they said at the time. They had an indigenous Mexican group. They had villages. They had Syrians, Turks, Native American tribes, Patagonians, and the Inuit people from Japan. So they all were in traditional dress. They had villages set up, and it was a human zoo that you could wander (laughs) through and look at. So I go back to the pygmies. You said it's a a diverse group. Well, lots of different tribes that. But they're all all shorties. They well, some are, but they. That was just a term people gave them. They didn't. It's a bit like the word Eskimo used to just include a whole group of people but is now a racist term because these were just names that the local people didn't recognise. Well, just you're Europeans gave Killing the buzz. You're saying there's no such thing as a pygmy. No such thing as a pygmy, no. Mm. What about, did they ever shrink heads? Well, some tribes S- excuse did. Excuse my racism, but yeah, I don't yeah, yeah. know. No, no, no. As far as I'm concerned, the little guys run around the desert. Are you and going off like you, cartoons? <laughs> <laughs> they catch you, they'll shrink your head. Yeah, yeah. No, I think no. I think that would be considered these days a like an inaccurate description of what was going on. But at the time, in nineteen oh four In year nine at my yeah. school that was taken as Red. Don't you remember cartoons and that when you're growing up? I thought mm. quicksand was going to be a much bigger problem in life <laughs> than it's turned out to be. Because <laughs> in every right show there was someone dying in quicksand. I played golf on a course that had quicksand. Did you? It's yeah. Did you manage to avoid it? No, no. <laughs> but I left it there. Yeah. When the ball say. goes in there, you just. Where was this? In Melbourne, in Victoria. I didn't know there it's was quicksand, mate. Why would I make it up? <laughs> so what are the pygmies doing in there? They're all just well, got villages their daily based thing? on it. They're doing things like local crafts. They're showing like hunting ideas, throwing spears, all sorts of things, right? All sorts of tropes that you would expect, right? That's what they but were told no to do. No shrinking heads. No shrinking heads, to my knowledge. But that did happen. Well, once again, <laughs> I feel like once again we've strayed away from what I've researched. <laughs> Which is becoming the common refrain. I'm flabbergasted it's a, it's, and confused it's bonkers, by the, right. so the human zoo. Human zoo. With, and you've got to remember, you know, we're not talking small things here. We've got 3,000 Indigenous people at these things. So it's it's lots. It's it's a massive thing. Could you do that today? Oh, look, I'd love to see it. Come back. Here's the influencers. Here's the, Here's the influencers in yeah. their natural I'd habitat. like me just sitting on a couch watching... <laughs> Streaming sport. Oh, that'd be know, in my natural habitat. With people tapping on the glass. <laughs> Actually, people could come watch us sit in the bar. Do they? <laughs> you know, perfect. So you, you got this yes. huge thing going on. The Olympics are running on. So there's this guy called James E. Sullivan. He's the man. He's very involved in the World Fair. And he's an American businessman, right. connected to all the politics there. He's the one that persuaded gently the IOC to bring the games to St. Louis yep. saying, if you don't, I'll end you, right? Yeah. So he's this sort of guy. He has this amazing idea. All the language you're using, a lot of it will be racist because it's just the language that they yes. use, right? So he called them savages, yep. you know, and he said, 
we've got all these groups of savages in the World Fair in the human zoo. Why don't we get them to compete against each other? Oh, no. <laughs> Why don't we get them to compete each other? Down to the track. Down to the track because the Olympics are on and have a sort of a savage. He called it a special Olympics. Why don't we have a special Olympics just for the savages to prove that they're not as good as white athletes? That's okay. literally what he wanted to do. Right. And he thought this will last two days and he thought we'll get him to do the traditional Olympic sports to show that they're not as good as white people. Right. He wanted to prove they were inferior. That was very much his aim. Yeah. They didn't hide it back then. It, no, it, it, was, it, it was, was out it, there, yeah, wasn't yeah. it? It wasn't a subtle racism or something, you know. It was, it was quite just overt. A full bore, full flat bore. chat, in your face racism. He also decided that these Indigenous people, he thought, well, there's sports I think they'd be good at that we could include as well alongside the… Javelin, they'd be good at javelin, yeah, we I would have thought. Yeah, we had stone throwing, mud fights, blowgun <laughs> shooting. <laughs> blowgun shooting? You'd want to target I love or... mud fights. Mud like, fight. do you think the Indigenous people, like, they're hunter-gatherers or they're from all different parts. Yeah. Some of them have got very sophisticated societies. You think they're just hanging around <laughs> having mud fights? They could probably build a house out of that mud <laughs> yeah, with right. three garages, but, yeah, yeah, you just want them to hurl it's at each totally other. It's totally bonkers, right? So he thought these uncivilised tribes, he could compare them to the white athletes, he could get an idea of where they were in relation mm. to what the advanced civilised, in his mind, yeah. white athletes were doing. So he decided he needed some scientific help with this because sure. you might have got a sense it wasn't a scientifically. <laughs> He's putting this together time. on the run. He got a guy called Dr. W.J. McGee who was president of the newly established American Anthropological Association and he was also the head of uh, one of the departments at the World Fair. So he was sort of this crack scientist. Was he part of the brains behind the human zoo? Or? Yeah, he'd been involved in wow. that too. And he was a big believer. He believed in things like, you know, everything from phrenology, you know, where the shape of your skull dictates how advanced you are and all these sort of, all these things have been disproven since, but he believed mm. in this. He had his own views on how the Indigenous groups would evolve. He said, well, I think that the Native Americans, they've got marvellous endurance for long distance running. He thought the black South Africans had boundless stamina. He thought the Filipinos were remarkable at climbing and diving. He thought the Native men of Patagonia were agile and muscular. And his hope was he could gather data off these two days of competition yes. and put together a scientific racial hierarchy of what races were better than other races. Like a bit of a TED talk. <laughs> Yeah, welcome still- to my TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> Here is the races I'm oh, how easy wow. I rate the races. So he was hardly like an enlightened guy. He was really wanting to build a racial hierarchy of da- this data yeah. to put the white man at the top, right? That was his whole idea. Was he onto something though? <laughs> 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 no, listen to me. He's, I'm just going to devil's advocate. Yeah, you've had a great career up to this point, so, uh, you know. No, my point is in saying that some races are more suited to some events, when you see yeah, all yeah. the best runners in the world He's, come from it, Kenya, all the best swimmers in the world come from waterside. There's no doubt that humans from certain parts of the world can have genetic attributes that does help. Mm-hmm. He had all preconceived ideas. He had no evidence of it, you know, and... Actually, one of the interesting things, though, to your point, he very much went in saying the white men are superior to all these things, but let's see where the rest of them see fall. See where they right? fall. Um, Pierre de Corbatain, who was the Olympics founder and still the head of the he IOC, who shoots, didn't he? go to San Luis, he hears of this and goes, this is an abomination. Right? <laughs> so he says, as for that outrageous charade, this is about the Special Olympics, yeah. as they're calling it, 
He said, it will of course lose its appeal when black men, red men and yellow men learn to run, jump and throw and leave the white man behind them. So he's been well, proven pretty correct. Quite prophetic, really, On isn't that. It? Now, just in case you think it, no one in this story should be thought of as particularly woke or enlightened because <laughs> Pierre uh, also said this about women's sport. A women's sporting competition, he said that he thought them, so he's very enlightened on racism, but not so much on gender equality. He said that women's sporting competitions were impractical, uninteresting, ungainly, and I do not hesitate to add improper. Women's glory rightfully came through the number and quality of children she produced, and that's where sports were concerned. Her greatest accomplishment was to encourage her sons to excel rather than to seek records for herself. Am I right, fellas? <laughs> Am I right? Yeah, I had that as my Tinder profile for a while. Yeah. Not a huge success. So I'm just saying, uh, like, he was a man of his time wow. too, even though on race he How was How brave bit... would you be to make that speech today? Oh, actually, if you go on Twitter, you'll hear the symbol of okay. things every day. So Sullivan and McGee have set up this whole wanting to prove the white man's physical superiority through these games. You'll be surprised to learn that these two days of Special Olympics oh my God. do not go to particularly well. Are women allowed to uh, compete in the no, Savage no, Olympics? No, 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 women, no that's, that's, women aren't competing in any of this. So first the crowds don't know it's on because the Department of Exploitation which is what they used to call departments of PR. Isn't that great? That wow. was the actual name they used to Just give it. Just come out and say it. Just come out and say it. They didn't have time to promote it because it was all, you know, <laughs> done. How would you promote it? Well, they started to say, you know, come see these savage tribes. That was the, like what they tried to promote it was, but no one wanted to come. The other fact that various Indigenous athletes, they hadn't been trained in any of these sports, right? Because a lot of them were sort of new sports even to Europeans, right? The Olympics were new. Yeah. People didn't know them. There was no standardisation. So the idea of it was ridiculous. And so they didn't take any of the sports seriously. So they got told to do this and this and they're like, I don't understand. And it wasn't that they were stupid. They just didn't really see the point. So, for example, <laughs> some of the people from Japan, they'd been climbing trees for fairgoers as part of the World Fair, but they were getting paid. So when they go, hey, do you want to come run for free and do these little events? They went, are you paying us? And then the <laughs> Europeans go, no, and they go, no way. Like, so apart why from, would they? So the opposite of being stupid, they were as canny as anything. <laughs> They're like, I'm happy to do this if you're paying me, but yeah. I'm not doing it for free. In another case... Why were they climbing trees? That was part of like one of the things they can do incredibly effectively and they often do it. Some tribes of Japan, so not all of them. Some of the sports were so far the Indigenous groups didn't even know what to make of them, so Sullivan had to quickly drop water polo from the program. Oh, my God. Because they all looked at it and went... Water polo. Eventually, though, they, through coercion and just pay quite a lot of them, it goes ahead. So 12th and 13th of August 1904 is when they hold this event. One event was throwing a 56-pound weight. It only had three competitors show up and all decided it was such a stupid exercise they refused to do <laughs> the second round at all. This is dumb. They all do the first and they go, what's nah. the point of throwing a heavy rock? It's just stupid. So they go, it's time for round two and they go... No. no thanks. Wouldn't have thought so. Wouldn't have thought so. <laughs> You'll never see that in the Olympics again when no. it dawns on an athlete as it. he goes in and says, oh, you know what, this all seems pretty pointless. Do you want to have another go? No, I don't nah. want to have another go. The 100-yard sprint was a nightmare. Every group spoke a different language, so explaining just the rules, because now everyone knows what 100 sure. but half the people there didn't 
couldn't be communicated with because they hadn't organised it properly. So a bunch of them, some of the Mabuti competitors from the Congo region of Africa, they just became really interested in the starting gun rather than the race. So they just stopped paying any attention. to. They didn't even try and run. They ran and hid. The race was such a mess that some competitors ran backwards, others in figure eights. <laughs> <laughs> no one understood what breaking the tape at the finish line was really about. So some either ran to it and then stopped and didn't cross it. Others waited for everyone else to come. <laughs> <laughs> and others ran under the tape um, and couldn't be bothered with it altogether. There was this sort of sense that it wasn't that these people, against what they were thinking, it wasn't that the Indigenous people were clueless or stupid. They knew this was a ridiculous event meant to embarrass them. So they just basically took the piss out of it. They just went, yeah. we'll get paid, but we'll do it really badly. And when you think about it, all these groups have gone on to learn all these sports and do incredibly and well at it. So yes. so the idea that this is like beyond them is ridiculous. Yeah. So they just really, they were just smarter than people thought. The second day was meant to be events that the natives, as they were calling them, had more affinity with. So these had a tree climbing contest, archery, fighting demonstrations. It had a Mohawk versus Seneca lacrosse match, a tug of war mud throwing, and it went just as badly as the first day. Are people so, turning up to this? No. <laughs> No one's to, no crowds turned up. The Arafo competitors, they from the plains of Colorado and Wyoming, they arrived in their traditional address that they'd been wearing at the World Fair. They were meant to do the tug of war. They look at the mud on the ground and go, nah. <laughs> it's a bit muddy. We're not dressed for this. And they leave. They just go. So that doesn't even happen. Sullivan and McGee have high hopes for the javelin thinking, well, it's yes. effectively a spear. And the shot put as well, thinking they're going to be good at this. Of the 24 competitors for the javelin, only a few of them got to the 25-foot mark. And the final report on the Special Olympics that was written up later said that the javelin throwing was just listed as another disappointment. <laughs> That's the official <laughs> report. They expected the Patagonian men from sort of down the very bottom of South America yep. to do well because they're very muscular and big. They thought that they would do well at the shot put. But you got to remember, they, none of these people care. They, they yeah. don't see this as a competition worth winning. Sullivan said of their best attempt that it was so ridiculously poor that it astonished all who witnessed it. <laughs> I'm strangely curious about it, it. Yeah, so it goes absolutely terrible. It's just one of the great stains on the Olympic movement that it even happened, well, basically. Unbelievable. They keep that quiet. Yeah. You don't they hear don't, a lot about that, the yeah. Savage Olympics no. anymore, do you? Sullivan and McGee believed that the Indigenous athletes just behaved poorly. They believed it was because the white Americans were so much better. But we're soon to learn that that's not true either. Yes. <laughs> Which you wouldn't be surprised. So then we get to the marathon. So finally the marathon is occurring. And so the Savage Olympics is finished. Was the marathon still, even at that stage, the last event of no, the Olympics? No, there was no order to this. There was like there'd be an event one day and then it might be not one an month. event for a month. Yeah, <laughs> and then, you know, so there's just don't think of it like the current okay. Olympics at all. But the thing about the marathon is we've talked about the Tour de France before. It really is up there with that one of those events like the Tour de France that pushes you your body to something that it really shouldn't be doing mentally yeah. and physically. Yeah. That's what it is. When you think about it, the first summer games, which was 1896, they decided to do the marathon and it was set up because Pheidippides, who it's based on his running after the Battle of Marathon in 1490 BC, he ran 25 miles to Athens to bring word of victory over the invasion Persians. Yeah. So that's what the marathon's based on. Now, what people don't mention is Pheidippides 
drops dead after delivering the message. You see, that's a crucial bit of information. <laughs> that I, is, I would have thought. Yeah. So they set up an event of which the only person who's ever been known in history to do it dies. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what the marathon's based on. Right and when he start. finished, when he arrived with the information, did he run the last two hundred meters like a thunderbird? Like, <laughs> do you know what he with, said? With his body do you want to collapsing? know his dying words? Joy to you, we've won, joy to you, and then he dies at their feet, which would have put a dampener on celebrations, I reckon. Yeah. I would have gone with go and get f***ed a lot of years. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> so the IOC loved this idea and they did it in Athens and Paris and it went okay, right? Mm-hmm. Not fast time dream. In St. Louis, though, the IOC basically see unfold the worst thing that could ever happen. It was to be run over 24.85 miles. So the current one is 26 miles and 385 yards or 42.2 kilometres. The reason it's a bit longer now is that the London Olympics a couple of years later, the Princess of Wales thought it would be nice if her kids could watch from the Royal Nursery the start of the race. So they tacked on <laughs> about another mile so they could do that. No worries, kids. They'd be getting the stink eye as you ran past, <laughs> wouldn't you? Yeah, I know. I'd be finished yeah, if it wasn't for you. Get you... So you got to remember, unlike, first off, uh, the planning for this is nuts. So unlike modern marathons, so now you only see the streets are shut, right? There's no cars on the road. They map out the route. Obviously. Yeah, you'd think obviously. In the 1904 (laughs) Olympic marathon, they don't shut the roads (laughs) and don't tell anyone it's on. Pip, pip. Yeah. So the road's full of people going about their daily lives and they are oblivious to the marathon being on. People running 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 through. So they're oblivious. So they have to dodge delivery wagons, trains, streetcars, kids, everything you expect of like a busy turn-of-the-century American city. In many places, it's either dirt roads or it's cracked stones all over the street. So the path's completely uneven and dangerous to run on. Usually the marathon now, you know, it starts early in the morning when it's cool. They decided instead that they would run it, at started at 3 p.m. at the height of summer in St. Louis, a southern American known for its humidity and high temperatures, right? This is where people just walk around in normal life patting their brows with handkerchiefs, don't they? Yeah, Yeah, it's the American South. It's humid as anything, right? So. This means also the hot weather means that the roads, which are unpaved, are just covered in several inches of dust because there's been no rain for ages. So it's like totally the worst you can imagine. On top of that, there's seven hills varying from 100 feet to 300 feet, many with incredible long and steep ascents. So the the marathon, even for today, the the route's terrible for what it is now. The extra kicker is they decide that water is only going to be available at two places along the course. <laughs> there's a ta- water tower six what? miles. What? There's a water tower six miles into the race and then a roadside well 12 miles in. Now, amazingly, this isn't poor planning, right? The rest of it is poor planning. This isn't. This is the, a deliberate strategy. The organisers decide that they want to find out the impact on competitors of purposeful dehydration. <laughs> Do you know whose idea that was? Oh. James E. Sullivan, who came up with the Savage Olympics. He's an ideas man. He's trying to test the envelope, <laughs> push a, the envelope. Is, is, they're, is, they're not good ideas, but he's definitely got a lot of them. Seems like a bit of an ass. He's a real like <laughs> piece of work. They say, well, we're just um, not going to have water. You think now, if someone takes their kids to a cafe in the car, they take four bottles of water <laughs> like they're crossing <laughs> the right. Sahara. Back then it's like, no. Nah. <laughs> So as this happens, you suddenly got the night of it dawning of the marathon, the night before, you suddenly realise you've got uneven grounds, public still using the roads, hottest time of the day and no water. 
Now, you think luckily all these competitors are professionals, right? Yeah. We'd be wrong. They're not professionals <laughs> at all. So given yeah. the fact that no one had been able to get to St. Louis because yeah. they don't want to go, there's a bunch of Americans. Some of them have run marathons before, but only about four of them. Mm. Most people who are participating haven't. There's one guy called Fred Laws who had run the Boston Marathon. He'd come fourth in that the year before. He's a bricklayer by trade, so he's not professional. <laughs> He, because he worked laying bricks all day, he trained at night. So he wasn't really used to running in the day <laughs> the and in day, the heat. Three o'clock. Then they went, there were two Greeks <laughs> taking part. You know, Greece is very linked to the marathon, oh, given see, its origins. The original. These two Greeks, though, had never, ever run a marathon right. before. So I don't think just but being people born. people just assume yeah, they're from Greece, they'll nail this. I don't think being born <laughs> Greek just instantly makes you a marathon runner. Are they wearing togas? <laughs> That's right. They had sandals and togas. Wait till you see them with a discus. <laughs> Then they went, well, how do we get more people in this? Well, I know. Why don't we get some of the savages that we got in the Special Olympics Sullivan, and I'm ask them to run in the marathon? I sense the hand of Sullivan. So this is how you get the first two black Africans. They'd had some white South Africans in the Olympics before. Yeah. But the first ever black Africans to run in the Olympics or compete in any event is in this event through the fact that they were overdoing the World Fair World Human Fair. Zoo. So they got him out of the human zoo. They got him out of the zoo. They like, literally got him out of the yeah, like, marathon's like an exercise yard for the human <laughs> yeah, zoo. All right, we'll, we'll release you, but you've got to run. So these two Swana men, they're from Western Botswana and Northwest province of South Africa, a guy called Len Tanye and Jan Mashane. They're in St. Louis because three months earlier, they'd responded to an advertisement in the Johannesburg Rand Daily Mail. It said, Boar War Exhibition, a chance for the unemployed, four pounds per month and deductions. This is for them to come over at the World Fair and participate in what was the Boar War Exhibition, which was part of the World Fair, and it was performed twice a day. There's 600 performers in it, and it recreates two of the key battles of the Boar War with explosions, horses, sword fighting, and a musical number. <laughs> it's in a purpose-built like finish. It's like in it. a purpose-built pavilion that had a river built into it, a man-made river. And it could seat 15,000 a show and it cost 50 cents a ticket and it's a huge success. It's a huge success. Huge success. People want to go and see a recreation of the ball walk. Yeah. Now, with a musical number, yeah, a big finish, and horses exposed as a like whole high thing, kicking. Right? Yeah, well, how, how do you close the show with a <laughs> with, with a, a Hello yeah. Dolly style? I think any war movie should end <laughs> with a musical number. <laughs> you like platoon, just uh, the, the, deer the lack of music. The deer, yeah, hunter. The deer hunter really lack from musical. So Tanya and Mashani, they've done quite a bit of work to get into character for these shows mm. because the way they got into characters, they'd actually participated in the ball war, which had finished only two years before. So they could bring some truth to their performance. Well, they had both been dispatch runners being shot at in the real Boer War and at the end of the Boer War they get called and said, do you want to participate <laughs> in the musical number of it? <laughs> like the world they probably was just preferred nuts. the original, I reckon. Yeah, this is like someone putting on an Afghan, you know, war yeah, yeah. like now. Like it's, you know, just right for a... But everyone's turning up. That was the no equivalent of going to see a war film there's but we no don't, there's politi- no film yet. Yeah. So we'll employ the actors. Well, it did happen. Remember with all the World War II movies in sort of the 50s, a lot of them had actors in it who had fought in the war. So they, they people were like, gee, these guys are really yeah, good actors. It's all but it was back really to like, him. Yeah. They agreed to do the marathon because they've they've done some of the others. Another guy that agrees to come on is a guy called, and he's from Cuba, Felix de la Caridad Caraval y Soto, who's known as Andarin Caraval, which is a bit easier to remember. Mm. So Andarin, he's a postman from Cuba. And he's walked the length of his country to show off his endurance and to raise money. So people give him money 
like saying, he goes, I want to go to the St. Louis Olympics. Will you give me some money? And he walks around Cuba to get the money. Gets the money. He then gets on a boat, travels, lands in New Orleans because on his way to St. Louis. He promptly loses all the money he's raised in a game of dice. (laughs) So he has to then hitchhike to St. Louis from New Orleans. Is he raising money as he hitchhikes? It's 650 miles. He has to hitchhike. He arrives in St. Louis with no money for accommodation, but the thing about Caraval you'll learn is he's, by all accounts of anyone who's met him, is the most jovial, friendliest person in the world. Everyone loves him. Anyone that meets him just loves him. So he gets befriended by the US men's weightlifting team. (laughs) They let him live with them. With them, taking him on board. Yeah, so he does that. But you got to admit, like, hitchhiking 650 miles and living with muscular American men you don't know. Sure. Not a normal Olympic. He's out there. <laughs> Not a normal <laughs> Olympic. He's living a life. So these are the sort of people in the race. So people who haven't done the marathon. He's not thinking it through. There's no <laughs> forward thinking or, or master plan. No. But he's having a crack. He's having a great time. Tuesday, 30th of August, 1940, 32 men assemble for the start. They're greeted by a human afternoon with the temperature on its way to 32 degrees Celsius. Jesus. So it's hot and humid. Like humidity is almost yeah. 100. Yeah. Um, the tone for the race is sort of set when Caraval, the Cuban, our Cuban postman, arrives at the stone line wearing a white long sleeve shirt, full-length pants, a beret, and a pair of Oxford leather shoes. What? <laughs> to run in. <laughs> to run in. That's what he shows up in. Luckily, his affinity with large muscular American men sort of kicks off with a United States discus thrower who's there watching, takes pity on him and cuts his pants into shorts with a pair of scissors. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the... Now, Tanya and Mashani are from Africa. Yeah, they don't have shoes at all. So they're just ready to go. At 3.03 p.m., it starts off. They start running. They do five laps of the stadium which goes okay, yeah. before heading out into the roads that, of course... Which are open. No one is, yeah. yeah no. Just to underline that no thought has got into this at all, a big group of vehicles with journalists, officials, doctors and the teams all kept off in front of them, kicking up so much dust <laughs> that the runners start instantly oh, having no. trouble breathing and start going down. Wow. Like, because it's just coating their lungs, right? They can't cut it all. Can I ask how far before their first drink? <laughs> yeah, <they'll, laughs> Is it coming? Hard. They've still got a third to run before oh, they even get to the first wow. place to drink. So not far into the race, William Garcia, who's from California, he collapses in the middle of the road unconscious from inhaling all this dust. And it's coated his esophagus and it's ripped his stomach lining and he started hemorrhaging. And he has to be rushed to hospital and Garcia became incredibly close to being the first death at the Olympics. Because the doctor yeah. said if he hadn't been treated for one more hour, if he hadn't got to hospital, he would have died. So that's how close they came to the first fatality. In the Still Olympics. no water. Still no water. Do you want to know the first fatality ever in the yes, Olympics? Yes, I was going to ask you. In 1912 in Stockholm, Portugal's flag bearer, um, Francisco Lazaro, he collapses at the 19-mile mark, 30 kilometres in, of the marathon yes. again with a body temperature of 41 degrees Celsius, it turns out to protect him from the sun, he's covered himself in beef fat to protect him from the sun. But the problem is it doesn't let it does you sweat. He can't perspire, so his temperature goes And he was up. being attacked by dogs <laughs> before the, the entire race, route. Lazaro says before the race, either I win or I die. So he was well. kind of right. <laughs> Just not the way he wanted. Oh, Garcia's out of the race. He's passed out. The United States had another guy called John Lawden who'd won the Boston Marathon the year before. So he was a real runner, one of the few people who could do it. Yes. He suffers a bout of vomiting 10 miles in and gives up. So you got the top 
people who do know how to run a marathon, which is saying, not many of yeah, them, not making it. This is not good. Another guy who's won the Boston Marathon the year before, he doesn't do any better. He collapses from exhaustion. The bricklayer who only runs at night normally. <laughs> How's he going? He, Fred Laws, he runs into trouble at the nine-mile mark and he collapses from dehydration, yeah. funnily enough, because there's no yeah. water. So he hops into a support car. They keep driving and he's waving at spectators and having a great time, waves at some of the runners he passes. So he's out of it. He's out of it. The course keeps going and people just keep dropping out, severe cramping, all these sort of things. You've got <laughs> no water. So suddenly you have the Swana runner, Tanya. He has encountered an even more unique problem than the rest of them going down. A wild dog starts attacking him and chases him <laughs> a mile off course. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a normal marathon. So he's like, you know, this <laughs> It's a mile off course. Yeah. He's like literally running from his life from a wild dog that's attacking him. Our friendly Cuban, Anderin Caraval, he's having a much better time than most though because he's not in distress at all. And the reason is he keeps stopping to chat to spectators because he's so friendly. So he's not really running. He just runs for a bit, says, oh, how you going? Now, one of the problems he has, at one point he sees a stopped car that's sort of watching what's going on yeah. and he sees that they're eating peaches and this reminds him that he hasn't eaten for 40 hours before the race. Oh, jeez, the perfect preparation. <laughs> he's starving. So he says to the occupants of the car, can I have a peach? They say no, so he snatches two and runs off. <laughs> <laughs> so it feels then, like the cannonball run. It's totally what like is there's, happening? there's no sense to it, right? He stole two peaches. Yeah, so a bit further along, he's eating the peaches. Did the car pursue him? Well, did, no, did, they kind of, you know, in this fruit-obsessed state of his, I would be he finds roping. an orchard. <laughs> so he stops to eat apples, but unfortunately the apples are not ripe. So suddenly he goes stomach cramps. <laughs> so he lies down in the orchard and falls asleep. <laughs> 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 the leader at this point is an American called Thomas Hicks who's in the league, but he's struggling as well, so it's not going well. Suddenly our bricklayer, our nighttime bricklayer, Fred Laws, who's gotten the car, remember, at the yeah, nine-mile he, mark? He, he went, he's out. The car he hops in overheats at the 19-mile mark, so he gets out of the car and discovers that the 10-mile car ride done wonders for how he feels. <laughs> He's not re-entering the race. So he just starts running <laughs> again and suddenly ends up, just has to run the last five miles. He suddenly gets ahead and he runs into the stadium and the crowd, completely no. unaware he's been in a car, think Americans going to win. They go nuts. They're thrilled. They all start cheering. He looks fresh. Yeah, he, he, he looks a marvelously <laughs> good weight for everyone else. So he runs in. The US President, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, his daughter is overseeing the official functions in the stadium, she actually gets to the point where Laws crosses the line, is announced the winner, and she's about to put the wreath on his head, over his head, and at that point someone yells out, he's a cheat, he's been in a car, <laughs> and everything That's stops. That's not the Olympic spirit. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, things saying, what? And he's saying he's an imposter, he cheated. And so suddenly the crowd starts booing him. And so he uses the age-old excuse that everyone does when you're caught doing the wrong thing. He goes, I was just joking. I was always going to admit I got in the car. <laughs> so this, so this oh, is yeah. sort of, while that's happening, Thomas Hicks, who's the real leader at this point, he's seen him go laws run past him, not knowing about the car. Yeah. He thinks, he's struggling and thinks, I'm second. But he's really first because yeah. laws is out. 
So he's going on, he's in real thing, and he's being urged on by his team, which is a trainer, Hugh McGrath, and Dr. Charles Lucas. And they've he's saying, I don't think I can go on, and I'm coming second. This is demoralizing. And he's got seven miles from the finish lines. He tells his team that I just want to lie down. Dr. Lucas steps in and says, I'll help you. So he gives him one sixteenth of a grain of sulfate of strychnine. Hey, God. The poison swallowed down with some raw egg whites. That seems like the sensible thing to do. <laughs> yeah. It really does at this stage. So what could go wrong? Well, strychnine, like most people know, it's like a poison. It's used for rat poison. Yeah, it's used yeah, in yeah. like it's Agatha Christie murder mysteries. Very popular form of death, <laughs> particularly amongst women, I believe. Yeah, it's huge. So now the thing here is, apart from it being used for all those things, strychnine, if, can I just say, if you're listening to this or watching this, mm. don't take strychnine. I, you know, I shouldn't have to say this. Yeah, but we're saying it. We're saying it. But what it does in really small doses is it's a stimulant of the central nervous system, right? So it enables your neurons to fire even when basically they're a level where they shouldn't be firing. So it gives you a little like jolt to your neurons. So it's arguably beneficial, but it's got to be in like a micro dose. It's not very You've got to get it right. Yeah. You you follow the serving suggestion. Don't go. I would say don't take it at all. But to give you an idea at the time, the novelist H.G. Wells, you know, War of the World, yep. like, he observed that strychnine was a great tonic that took the flabbiness out of man. So it was quite a popular thing to take in small doses. That's what it says then. on the billboard. <laughs> takes the flabbiness out of a man. Hicks support team, they've given him strychnine. Raw egg whites. They also had a flag. Has he had any water yet? He's stopped at one at this oh, point. They oh. also had on them a flagon of brandy um, to help him along, but they decided to see how the strychnine would go before giving him any of that. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, this is the first ever documented account of doping in the modern Olympics. Yeah. But at the time, it's not illegal. So while it's giving a, you know, it's not illegal, but it's the first case we have. They just haven't factored in the ramifications of this because it's not a thing yet. It's too new. So um, they didn't have it back then. The strychnine kind of works So in a way that Hicks keeps shuffling along and he's not really running though, but he's sort of just stumbling in a forward direction. He's in terrible shape. The word reaches him that Laws has been disqualified and hasn't won. So suddenly he realizes he's back in the league. I'm back, baby. But he's struggling really hard. So... He's, you know, 20 mile mark, to, he, he's got a f- few more miles to go, but he's ashen, he's limp. His support team, they decide to do what anyone would do in this situation. They give him more strychnine and egg whites and a sponge bath of warm water in the middle of the road. <laughs> <laughs> and again, people are driving by in cars. Yeah, they're and, just and like. Getting on trams. Yeah, they're and, just, what's going on here? <laughs> So he starts hallucinating and he starts telling his support team, he's got two miles to go, but he starts telling them that the finish line's 20 miles away. You're lying to me. It's 20 miles away. Okay. And it's not, it's two, but it's just he's starting to hallucinate. He's dirtying up there. And he says, can I have some food? He goes, I want to stop and can I have some food? And they say, why don't we give you some of the brandy? <laughs> This is the worst support team in the history of athletics. Support team's kind of like false advertising, isn't it? They give him some brandy. They then offer him tea, which he refuses because he's an athlete. (laughs) He's he's responsible for what goes in his body. So he's at this point he's fueled by strychnine, raw egg whites, brandy, which is the breakfast of champions for anyone. And he's plodding along and he's walking up the last two hills and sort of stumble jogging down them, right? And so he's running so mechanically 
so badly that he can barely run. So his doctor says this, his own doctor writes this, and they're pushing him along. He wants to stop. They're saying, no, keep going. He says, over the last two miles of the road, Hicks was running mechanically like a well-oiled piece of machinery. His eyes were dull, lusterless. The ashen color of his face and skin had deepened. His arms appeared as weights well tied down. He could scarcely lift his legs while his knees were almost stiff. But apart from that, don't stop, though. he they was having stop. a ball. Yeah. So finally, he enters the stadium. It's half an hour after Laws has entered the stadium and been discovered to be fake. And the crowd are like watching a man literally on the verge of death. He's barely moving his feet. He's jerking spasmodically and he's a terrible shade of grey. He basically like, like looks like the walking dead zombie. You yeah, know? He's I that get it. bad. The trainers are forced to step in and carry him with Hicks's feet shuffling along into this tragic parody of something. Is that allowed? Running. So it's literally like Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> they are carrying him at this point and his feet are just stumbling and he can barely hold his own thing. It's like a total farce. He gets carried across the finish line and declared the winner despite what? being carried. He wasn't aware, though, that he'd won because at that point he falls unconscious. Four doctors work on keeping him alive and it's touch and go. So they almost like it took a full hour of four doctors yeah. administering first aid to stop him dying. And it was only after this treatment that he's able to leave the stadium. He lost four kilograms during the race. He said of the race, never in my life had I run such a tough course. The terrific hills simply tear him into pieces, which is sort of true, but he doesn't really mention that it's really the poison. <laughs> <laughs> that also almost killed him. Because he's frothing at the mouth at this stage. Yeah. It'll now, be... we've got a photo which we'll put up of him sitting yep. in the car immediately after the marathon and it is, you look at him. On the go, way to hospital, I Yeah, hope. on the way to hospital. But he managed to survive and he went on to run several more marathons and lived to the age of 76. Well, there he you actually go. did so. So here's the winner. Now, of the 32 men who started the race, only 14 finished it which is the worst ratio in the history of the Olympic marathon. Well right? done. Hicks was crossed the line at three hours, 28 minutes and 53. It's the slowest Olympic marathon ever. Yeah. Uh, United States win gold, silver and bronze. But what's amazing is Hicks almost dies. Our Cuban postman, Caraval, he awakes from his nap in the <laughs> orchard and feels incredibly rejuvenated. So he continues on. He goes. And comes forth. <laughs> Did he beat the guy who got chased by the wolves? Yeah, yeah we'll dog. get into them. So, so you consider he talked all the way, stopped for a sleep, stole some peaches, stole peaches, and then <laughs> still came forth, which shows you how slow the runners were going who really tried. I think anyone who finishes this one deserves oh, yeah. a round of applause. Uh, the Swana men, so Tanya, oh, yeah. he came ninth, and Mashani came in 12th despite that challenging incident with the wild dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh so it's a complete mess. So the race ends with a winner who travelled by car that just stopped. <laughs> the actual winner so doped up he almost dies. Yes. You've got dogs chasing people. <laughs> <laughs> of course. You've got a postman that stops to eat fruit and has a sleep who still comes forth. <laughs> now Laws, who faked, faked winning it. and yeah. said I was just joking, he's How's banned he for life. He's banned for life. Less than a year later, though, he apologises and manages to convince officials that he never really meant to claim victory, that he convinced them that he was joking, right? They yes. believe him. So his ban gets lifted and he goes on, wins the 1905 Boston Marathon, and this time he does it without a car. <laughs> did that go on to be the famous Boston yeah. Marathon? Is yes, that, that, yeah. they did. There's protests against Hicks using strychnine and the fact that he was carried 
over the uh, finish line. Probably which, got a bit that, of yeah. That's probably the bit yeah, that's grounds. Good. Um, James E. Sullivan, of course, is the one they have to complain to. He says, Shikdeen's not a banned substance. I don't really care. And you just got the feeling after the... After <laughs> I the, wish he was my doctor. <laughs> I don't go and see this guy. <laughs> and you get the feeling like Sullivan after the failure of the Savage Games. Yes. The marathon being an absolute mess. He just wants it over. Yeah. He's like, he's got the world fair to run. This is becoming a nightmare. The IOC, though who are kind of separate in a way because yeah. they're just like they're just sick of this whole St. Louis Olympics. <laughs> they're aghast by the thing, the near deaths, the how bad it goes, how bad it looks. They consider and actually so we're going to ban the marathon. Marathon will not happen again. That's it. Yeah. But they finally, the protests of a lot of runners say, you got to remember that was terribly organised. We can do better. Bring it back. So they do bring it back for the London Olympics in 1908. So they do have it again, and that's where they add the the extra distance for the Princess of Wales. But otherwise, a fairly straight run affair. Which from then it starts to settle down. They start to learn run it in the morning. I don't like have, the don't old have days. dogs. I shut like, down the roads. The laissez faire. No, Ban strict St. Louis. <laughs> don't have a support crew that's actively trying to kill their runner. <laughs> <laughs> Just as a postscript to all of this, the use of strychnine. Yes. In the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, a Chinese volleyballer called Wu Dan was found to have taken strychnine. So it still goes on to this day that people Incredible. take it. How'd they find it? She said, well, they tested the drug testing. Yeah. And she said that it was a herbal medicine she had taken, which, you know, yeah. herbal medicine is, <laughs> is what they all say. So that's the 1904 St. Louis Olympic Marathon, which is, to me, the bizarrest, weirdest event. But I have to say, I've researched this. Yes. I just absolutely love the two South African runners. Yes. Two of my favourite all time. But arguably my favourite Olympian of all time is the Cuban postman. <laughs> With the fondness for Honda and Carapa. <laughs> Who oh, most people it. do not know, and I cannot believe he is not celebrated as one of the great Olympic heroes. He should because, be on the poster. You know <laughs> what I mean? He should be. If you're stealing fruit and sleeping in an orchard. And still come forth, did you say? Yeah, living with the US men's Olympic team <laughs> and losing all your money and, <laughs> and still coming forth. He stole those peaches, didn't he? And yeah, ran off. And ran off. Is that not the greatest at, yes. at, like Olympic story? I think it is. Of all time. We should do a recreation. We should go back to St. Louis, get mark out the map and go, <laughs> take all comers <laughs> not and, and take we don't, strict We also don't need to really organise it because we don't need to There's shut the There's nothing to organise. <laughs> we'll just do it. <laughs> don't mind us. Oh, Thank see. you, uh, Titus O'Reilly. If you'd like more Sports Bazaar, things get even bizarrer, join our membership program, Bazaar Plus. Very easy to do. Just follow the link in the show notes for this podcast or go to bazaarplus.com to join Bazaar Plus, our membership program. Cheers. Yeah.